All American comfort foods often originated in the Old World. It was Welsh miners who brought the precursor of the Hot Pocket to Michigan's Upper Peninsula. It was a savory dish and a sweet dish enclosed in a singular pastry shell, the original pasties at least. Coming up, we hear the stories and the side dishes behind the staples of a mid-American feast. Don't worry about going hungry when you hike a Swiss mountain trail. The Swiss are amazing about putting cafes in the most unlikely places. A former U.S. ambassador recommends fun things to do year-round in Switzerland. And diving experts from Australia tell us about their favorite places to explore underwater, even in offshore Alaska and Scotland. Cold water environments around the world are absolutely spectacular underwater. Sometimes they're even more colorful than corresponding tropical reefs. It's amazing. Take a plunge with us in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. He sure knows how to liven up an American potluck. Matthew Gavin Frank serves up juicy tales to a company's signature foods from all 50 states. He brings us a sampler of comfort foods from the Midwest in a minute on today's Travel with Rick Steves. An ambassador recommends the sites in Switzerland where you don't have to be neutral to enjoy one of Europe's most efficient, tidy, and scenic countries. And dive travel experts share their favorite places to explore the world's seascapes. If you imagine the typical dish from your home state, what comes to mind? And what does that food illustrate about your state's history and culture? Matthew Gavin Frank focuses on one famous food from each of the 50 states and draws those historic and cultural connections for us in his book, The Mad Feast, an ecstatic tour through America's food. Today, Matthew joins us as we focus on a road trip through Midwestern states and tastes. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Howdy, Rick. Thank you for having me. Now, you worked for 20 years in the restaurant industry, and you've set out to have this one unique sort of a dish from each state. That's a pretty big statement. Is it realistic that there's a dish from every state that reflects that state's culture, and, and do states have their own individual cultures? It's, it's completely unrealistic, actually, but I had to boil it down to one for the sake of the book. So, um, of course, no state culture is monolithic. All of these uh, states have multifaceted identities, um, but for the sake of the book, I had to pick one. That's fun. And can you really distinguish states by culture? I mean, states have their own culture, but each culture, you know, uh, houses its own various subcultures. So I feel like each state is a tapestry and not necessarily representing a singular culture, but um, that tapestry could kind of be unique to a particular state, you know, South Carolina versus Minnesota, for instance. Reading through your book, I I get hungry and I'm ready to travel right now. So take us to Minnesota. What's a dish in Minnesota that would be sort of um, iconic? And then how does that represent that culture? Yeah. So for Minnesota, I chose a hot dish, which isn't really easily defined. I I was speaking to somebody in Minnesota about it, and uh, this one particular chef basically defined it as a catch-all casserole that was birthed in desperation. So you could have various different kinds of of hot dish. It is a casserole. It's usually a one-pot dish. The most popular one that you find in kind of holes in the wall in Minnesota um, involved like a hamburger, mashed potato, string bean, cream of mushroom soup, lechoy fried onion hot dish. 
it sounds like uh, if you're getting together, you bring a hot dish, right? I mean, that's what people do when they have a fellowship together. And you, you even talked about how, you know, they would gather together in the warmest place in town, which would be like the basement of the Lutheran church. And I could just see people saying, yeah, I'll bring a hot dish. And then they kind of grab whatever they've got and heat it up and tie it together with some mushroom soup. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. The mushroom soup uh, actually became... Uh, so favored as the binding agent in hot dish and so ubiquitous that it became known in, in early hot dish circles as Lutheran binder, uh, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, kind of wonderful. But they used to have these epic potlucks in um, the basements of Lutheran churches. Okay, and bring a hot dish. So that's Minnesota, and that's the Lutheran culture there. What about Michigan? I'm presently living in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Um, I'm originally from Chicago, but I chose the kind of um, culinary or gustatory mascot of uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula, which is the pasty, uh, which is like a almost like a calzone. The original pasties uh, were typically eaten by miners. It was a savory dish and a sweet dish enclosed in a singular pastry shell, the original pasties at least. And the miners would eat down through the savory, usually like stewed ground beef and rutabaga. And after they got through that, they would find at the bottom of the shell this lovely kind of apple and cinnamon compote. Um, so two courses in one shell. I think of this as a dish from Cornwall. And yeah, it, it seems like a calzone also from, from Italy. But Cornwall has that mining connection. And in Cornwall, uh, famously, the, the, the miners would have dirty hands and and at lunchtime, they would have actual handles on this uh, pasty that they could hold, and then they eat all the, the good food, and then they actually get to the dessert, and then they just toss away the little handles. Does that just relate to a mining kind of culture, and what are you going to do for lunch in an era before you know plastic bags? It, it does. Um, in, in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, like from the 1850s through the 1930s, like native copper was just about leaking from the earth, and so... A lot of the immigrant miners here were from Cornwall, but so many more were Finns, Austrian, Croatian, Italian, Canadian, Swedish. And so this kind of uh, hybrid pasty was born here. Matthew Gavin Frank teaches creative writing at Northern Michigan University and edits their online literary journal, Passages North. His book, The Mad Feast, is called An Ecstatic Tour Through America's Food with Wild Backstories to Accompany a Dish from Each of the 50 States. Matthew also explores the role of outlaw carrier pigeons in South Africa's illicit diamond trade in Flight of the Diamond Smugglers. His website is matthewgfrank.com. Matthew, take us to Wisconsin. Uh, So, uh, Wisconsin, I I picked the uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin-style bratwurst. Unlike uh, many bratwursts that um, you would find in Sheboygan... They tend to uncase the bratwurst. Uh, They pull the meat out of the casing itself and flatten it, almost like a burger. And you eat it kind of on a hard roll with butter, ketchup, brown mustard, raw onion, and pickles. Uh, It's it's pretty wonderful. (laughs) And and does that go back to its... uh... German immigrant history, or, or where does that go back to? That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, the German immigrant history in Wisconsin is is pretty profound, and the Sheboygan bratwurst hasn't strayed too far from it. Hey, um, Matthew, take us to Iowa. So Iowa, I picked uh, the loose meat sandwich, which you really don't find anywhere else except in Iowa. It's a uh, the best way to describe a loose meat sandwich, maybe, would be like a sloppyless sloppy Joe. 
So sort of like a sloppy joe without all of uh, without all of the sauce, just kind of like a, a seasoned ground beef and onion. And it's known as the loose meat because the meat itself is so loose and crumbly and kind of bursts out of the bun when you bite into it. Is it on a toasted bun or just a soggy bun? Uh, usually it's on a it's kind of like on a soggy, spongy uh, white bread bun. Um, no frills. Okay, I'm in the mood for some chili. Take me to Ohio. Well, uh, if you want some good Cincinnati chili, um, yeah, um, it can it can be found. The Cincinnati chili is absolutely fantastic, and it's uh, unique in its spices. A lot of cinnamon and clove in a Cincinnati chili, and the accompaniments with Cincinnati chili um, just kind of defy both expectation and reason, really. You could get a Cincinnati chili straight up. You could get it. Uh, Cincinnati chili one way, two way, three way, four way, or five ways. Um, you could get it with onion. You could get it with onion over pasta. All sorts of um, interesting kind of combinations with the chili. It's it's pretty great. And this would go back to their uh, the Macedonian community. That's right. Uh, these Macedonian brothers actually uh, started Cincinnati chili with a, a little street food stand. Um, they started cooking um, Macedonian and Grecian cuisine, and they found that uh, the folks in Cincinnati um, weren't going for it so much, so they tried their hand at chili. They were cooking uh, basically down the road from an old burlesque show, so uh, a lot of the women who were performing at the burlesque show would, would get out in the wee hours and gorge themselves on, uh, on the Macedonian Brothers Cincinnati chili on the corner. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Matthew Gavin Frank, and his book is called The Mad Feast, an ecstatic tour through America's food and you know, Matthew, I just love the way this book celebrates food, but it also celebrates the, the cultural roots of each of our states here in the United States. As you were traveling around the country to do this, we're just talking about the Midwest right now, but, you know, I guess when I'm traveling around the United States with my work as a TV producer, I'm always getting people coming out of the woodwork saying, why don't you do a show on Macedonia? Why don't you do a show on Lithuania? Why don't you do a show on Poland? And it, it represents where their heritage is. And where I live in Seattle, why don't you do another show on Norway? That sort of shows itself in the passion for, for the cuisine locally. As you traveled around the United States, and you went to all 50 states to do this book, what sort of overall you know, conclusions did you draw about what is the fabric of our, of our nation as a whole when it comes to all these individual cultures? It's kind of funny, Rick. I had a, a similar experience when I was driving around um, talking to people, interviewing people, uh, people who work at historical societies, um, chefs, local folks in, in towns at like county fairs and things like that. I kind of found like a, a similar response um, when I was telling them about the dish I was thinking about exploring. They were saying, well, why don't you write an essay instead about this? Why don't you write an essay instead about that? And so, of course, I, I couldn't do it all. So as far as drawing conclusions go... This kind of uh, travel actually complicated um, the U.S. for me rather than like boiled it down to like a singular identity like this, this kind of uh, travel and talking to all of these people from various and diverse cultures. It almost it almost made me resist uh, drawing conclusions and just kind of celebrating these kind of multitude of voices as I as I went through and multitude of dishes. I love that, how it complicated rather than simplified your understanding of our country. I was in. I think it was North Dakota or South Dakota. I'm not much, my, my beat is Europe, you know, but everybody was talking about this German cuisine. And I thought, oh, you've got, you've got a German heritage. No, it's Russian heritage, and it's Germans that went to Russia and then went to North Dakota. And I just thought, my head is spinning. 
but it's so obvious to the people that live there. Uh, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it, as you travel around the country, and, and whether you're enjoying the history or the architecture or the food, you realize that we have a fascinating weave. Truly, it was a, it was a wonderful experience. So uh, let's just finish off with, uh, I understand you're from Chicago. Uh, What's the iconic dish in Illinois, and uh, what does it say about the culture? Well, it's more the iconic dish of Chicago than uh, Illinois. Uh, I'm so sorry, but um, I had to go with deep dish pizza. The genesis of deep dish pizza in Chicago um, is kind of chalked up to legend. Nobody knows the, the real story, but it was said to have been invented in 1943, possibly to commemorate the launching of the city's first subway, possibly to commemorate the Bears winning of the Super Bowl, which was then just known as the league title. And there was a pizzeria, um, Pizzeria Uno, on Ohio Street that would do thin crust. And on a whim, an unnamed chef, some think it might be Rudy Malnati, who later went on to open Lou Malnati's pizzeria, who was then a mere line cook, um, just decided to put together on a whim a, a thick crust pizza. And, and that's essentially how it was born. And I love thin crust pizza too. I, I never understood yeah. the pizza wars between New York and Chicago. I just yeah. thought, why not love both? Why not? That's great. Matthew, Gavin, Frank, thanks so much for writing the book, The Mad Feast, and taking us on an ecstatic tour through America's food. Bon appetit and happy travels. Thank you, Rick. Matthew Frank takes on the foods of the South in an earlier edition of Travel with Rick Steves. It's posted with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Diving enthusiasts from Australia recommend their favorite destinations to explore above and beneath the surface in a bit. But first, a former U.S. ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein recommends her favorite places and festivals in both countries. Switzerland, twice the size of New Jersey with 8 million people, is one of the best organized, most affluent, and educated corners of Europe. It's got a unique quality of life, a unique form of democracy, and I've long dreamed of having an American ambassador as a travel partner. And today, I'm excited to do exactly that as we explore Switzerland with Susie Levine. She served in the capital city of Bern as the United States ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein during the Obama administration. And today, she joins us in our studio to be our guide to a country she knows and loves. Susie, as they say in Switzerland, guten tag, bonjour, and buongiorno. Three languages, right? Four. Four, I know. Don't There's... forget about allegra. <laughs> I, don't under... I don't know and how to romance. say hello. Romance. Can you... Is that what that allegra. is? Allegra. Allegra. Wow, good for you. Hey, Susie, when people say, oh, it's the Switzerland of Central America, or, you know, they're kind of setting Switzerland up as a as a model, right? It's like a utopia almost. Costa Rica is the Switzerland of Central America. What do they mean by that? What's unique about Switzerland? There's so many things that are unique about Switzerland. It frequently ranks in the top five, if not top ten, of happiness, of trust in government. Um, it trades off with Japan in terms of life expectancy. You know, the quality of life there is a big focus. They work to live. They don't live to work. And there is a deep dedication to the outdoors, to the environment, and a relationship that people have to their world that I think we got a little taste of during the pandemic here in the United States, but that they live year-round. You know, that trust in government, trust in institutions. When you look at failed states, they have just the opposite. There's Mm -hmm. no more trust in institutions. Mm -hmm. When you look at states that are doing really well, and I'm thinking Switzerland and Scandinavia, 
there's a trust in government. Yeah. Another thing unique about Switzerland is this pride. I mean, the village is, is all cleaned up and decorated as if an important visitor is coming tomorrow, and it might just be you walking down the street. Yeah, well, you are the important visitor. And it's also not just for others, it's for themselves. Yeah. There's an interesting balance of individual responsibility and communal engagement. Oh, I love that. I where, love that. You know, it's, if there's a piece of garbage on the street, this is your street. Pick it up. Exactly. A Swiss person would not walk by that piece of garbage. Yeah, well, and a lot of their funding, a lot of their taxes stay very local. I want to talk a little bit about travel in Switzerland because yes. I just love Switzerland. And you uh, worked for three years during the Obama administration in Bern, the capital. And I think the capital is just such a together society. It's so casual. You walk across the park in front of the parliament building and kids are sprawled out on the grass playing backgammon and passing a joint around. <laughs> well, I would encourage you to actually also go, speaking of travel and speaking of the Federal Palace, to go sometime in November. Uh-huh when they do this incredible light show against the building. Oh, yeah. And, you know, sometimes the building will melt in using the lights. Sometimes it'll be a little show on it. So uh, I can just imagine a little bit of uh, Swiss humor in there as their government would do right. something funny with the laser lights on the building. Right. Well, And public spaces are so important there. Yeah. And I think it's really exemplified by the fact that you can drink the water from the fountains. Is that right? You never did that? I didn't. No, but I know that. You Rick! Got... <laughs> oh, my gosh. All you have to do is carry a cup with you. You don't need a I big backpack it. full of water. Even on hikes, you'll be on a hike and there's a little fountain. You're like, yeah. okay, let me refill. Because let's paint this little picture of Bern. There's a wonderful bend in the Ara River. It's the Ara River. The right? Oxbow around the, bi- yeah. around the capital. So you got this beautiful bend in the river, and then that peninsula has a spine, and that spine, every square as it goes down mm-hmm. to the peninsula, has a beautifully painted medieval statue in the middle of the totally, square. with a fountain. And, and you can drink. That was the original water source for the town. And it still is. So cool. It's amazing. And a wonderful connection with nature because if I was a legislator or an ambassador or something in Switzerland, I would really enjoy the float-down-the-river tradition. You walk up the river. Have you done it? Well, the one thing that I will admit to is my favorite thing is floating in the Ada. Yeah. And especially putting my head back and listening to the original Rolling Stones. Because what you have is all these little pebbles on the base of the river oh. that are flipping over each other. Oh, I love it. And you hear this just this symphony, and it is the best. Now, it is not for the faint of heart and faint of swimming. Have you done it? I've done it. And if you miss that pole, there's those weirs down farther, and I don't want to go down there. Yeah, no, no, no. But so you, you can't be a weak swimmer. You do need no. to be a pretty strong swimmer. Yeah. And it is the greatest amusement park ride that you don't have to buy a ticket for or wait in line for it ever. It is a treat. You've got a big park with a big pool and everybody hanging out. But those who want to hike up a couple hundred yards or even a couple, couple kilometers, yeah. hop in and you can have your inflatable or you can just you can just yeah. float on your back. Totally. And then you just got to maneuver yourself over to the side before you get to the right. end of that well, strip. And they've actually <laughs> updated it. I don't know if you've been there in the past couple of years, but there yeah. now is a turnout that then brings you into one of those pools. Oh, is that? Well, that's and handy. It's almost like one of those little uh, floating rivers that you'd have at a pool. Yeah. And so that oh, makes it a good. little bit easier instead of having to whip around. I want to go. And it's called Marzillibad for those people who are Marzillibad, trying. Marzillibad, right. M-A-R-Z-I-L-I. And in good Swiss style, you've got Lockers there that you can use and put your stuff in. And you can rent a towel. You can rent everything that you need, including a floaty. I want to go all the way up to Thun at the beginning, you know, interlocking between the two lakes. You got Lake Brands and Lake Thun. I'd love, I've dreamed about this for a long time, getting into a float boat in Thun and floating all the way down to 
in when I when we did that, we got to watch a little safety video first, and we had to sign a little release, right. and it was magnificent uh, to be able to do that. What a great day! This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're getting to know Switzerland uh, on a diplomat's tour with Susie Levine. She served as the U.S. ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein from 2014 to 2017. From cities to summits to chocolate and cheese, she's sharing her favorite Swiss things with us today on Travel with Rick Steves. Susie, when we think of Zurich, that's the big economic uh, center, the richest and uh, biggest city in Switzerland, the joke I heard was Zurich, zu rich, zu ruhig, meaning Zurich, it's a play on the words, mm-hmm. it's too rich and too sleepy, too quiet. Lots of money and lots of boredom. I don't think that's true anymore. But what's your take on Zurich compared to the other urban delights of Switzerland? Well, I think that there's a lot culturally to do in Zurich. I went to a number of concerts and to various shows. I also paddleboarded out of the uh, Zurich say that's right there. And you can float down the Limat that's right there in Zurich as yeah. well, just like you can down the Ada. It's a fantastic hub from which to do many things. I did a lot of business there. And yeah. there's also a lot of great restaurants. And when you say a hub, it's important to remember Switzerland is pretty small and it is amazingly collected by train. So wherever you are in Switzerland, it seems like, you can just get on the train and within an hour or two, you're at the airport in Zurich. I mean, if I'm way up in the high country of Lauterbrunnen Valley in the Berner yeah. Oberland, yeah. get on the train, you can catch an early morning flight and you just take a train direct from Bern to the Zurich airport. Exactly. It works like a Swiss clock, basically. Oh, my gosh, it's fantastic that way. Yeah, you know, yes. the Swiss are so buttoned down and so organized, but what is kind of a counterintuitive is they go absolutely crazy on fashing the, the local Mardi Gras. Oh, talking about Fasnach? Yeah, Fasnach. Oh, my gosh. If you're going to go to Fasnach, go to Basel. Have you gone to Basel for Fasnach? We did with our crew, and I just was... It It was was unbelievable. It was so fun, but you don't think of the Swiss as going uh, crazy during a festival, but uh, I think with all that organization and all that button-downness, they need that uh, relief. That's the kind of equivalent of Mardi Gras, isn't it? It's the cool, crazy time before What's interesting, though, is that a lot of the floats... So... For people to be aware, it starts in the middle of the night Uh and even the night before where you actually have the pipers and the drummers lining up in their locations and they get ready. And then the the following morning is when they start, they commence their processions from their respective locations. But each of their floats has a political theme. So it's actually quite political, too. And their parade goes in front of the Baselstadt, so the lead government house in Basel. I remember so they really had caricatures of local uh, exactly. politicians. Exactly. So in the United States, of course, you'd have you'd have Biden and you'd have Trump and you'd have uh, right. anybody, and they'd be in these grotesque masks, and everybody right. would cheer or boo or whatever. Right. And again, a lot of a lot of drumming, a lot of fifing, flutes. And it's really, really fascinating. The other festival is Exelun, and that's in Zurich. Mm -hmm. And that is where you have the guilds in parade, and then they circle around the Bogue at the end of winter. And it's almost like a Groundhog Day in terms of how long it takes the Bogue to go on fire determines how long the season's going to last. I remember when you talk about festivals in Switzerland, when I was a kid, we were on Lake Constance, and I've never seen fireworks like we saw (sighs) on Swiss Independence Day, August 1st, right? Yep. And when I was in Bern, where you lived for three years, I don't know if this was a reoccurring thing or just a one-timer, but 
there was a Buskers Festival. And uh-huh. all of it's the It's still street, there. Is it still there? Yes, it is. It's an it's annual one of the thing best. then. And it's one of the best. I was supposed to, I'm so focused on my research. I was updating my Switzerland guidebook and, oh no, there's a festival, so it's not of any value to me because uh, it's not going to be there for my readers. But it was like late at night and I was in my room trying to get some writing done and it was so noisy. And I finally said, Rick, have some fun. And I closed my laptop and I went out. I fell in love with the buskers, the streets, the energy, the people, the community. It was a buskers festival in the capital of Switzerland. There must have been 10 or 15 bands playing at the same time in squares all over town. It was amazing. I was there last June uh, for some work stuff and it just happened to be the same time. I yeah. was so happy. I was so, so happy. <laughs> I've never felt so good to pay the money to get that little plastic strap on your right? wrist so you're part of the team. You know? Amen to that. You can stand right up to the band. It's so and, true. Uh, by the way, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Susie Levine. And Susie is the former ambassador uh, from the United States to Switzerland and Liechtenstein for three years under Obama. You must have had a lot of guests when you were the, uh, working there. And I would imagine people asked you or even let you show them around. When we think about the Alps, what is your, you know, in a nutshell, assessment of where do you go to get the best Alpine thrills if you're a visitor? Ooh, best Alpine thrills. Well, the nice thing in Switzerland is there's fantastic hiking and there's great destinations. And whenever you have a really hardy, difficult hike, there's always great food at the end. The Swiss are amazing about putting cafes in the most unlikely places. I love that. Um, the nice thing is, is you don't actually have to pack in a ton of food. But in terms of places that we would send folks in the Alps and in mountain areas, but also in some of the lake areas, too. Yeah. We like to send people off the beaten path a little bit. I know you've spent a lot of time in Interlaken. I noticed you and your husband, Eric, like Kondersteg, I think. We loved Kondersteg because that was also very easy to get to. That's like 45 minutes away from Bern. It was very easy. The parallel valley to the more famous one, Grindelwald. Totally, totally. And there's a beautiful hike there. It was very easy to do. What about an easy summit? I mean, it's, there's so, so many summits you can... There are so many summits. Just a very, very easy one for Bernas. We would do uh, the Gurten all the time, and that was just a really easy little out mm-hmm. and back from, from the residents. Mm-hmm. But you have a ton, whether you're headed to Lucerne to go up Mount Pilatus, to go up Mount Rigi. Um, you could always take the train down to Zermatt, and there's all sorts of hiking down there. You know, um, I, I was impressed how much money they're investing in their lifts in Zermatt. Yeah, they told me half a billion dollars, five hundred million dollars, to get those lifts spiffed up, and it's it's fundamental to their economy, isn't it? They'll and, get it back, and yeah. they'll get it back. And you also have the various trains that take you up to Mirren and to Vengen. So anywhere you want to go, there is a great peak available. But I want to also talk about some of the areas that I think that you haven't yet had a chance to explore. Okay, down in Ticino. Oh, yeah. The Italian section of Switzerland. So 10% of uh, the Swiss speak Italian as their first language. There you go. Something like that. So it's important for people to remember it's the majority speak German or Swiss German, and then a good quarter of the population is French-speaking, and around 10% Italian and just a 1% or 2% Romance, that Latin, ancient yeah. Latin language. But talk a little bit about, it's called Ticino, right? The, the Italian is. part of Switzerland. It is. It is. And there's an amazing festival there in the summer. You have the Locarno Film Festival that's mm-hmm. there. In a way, you get the easy delights of Italy without any of the chaos and the craziness. of It's sort of Swiss Italy. The trains are on time. <laughs> the trains are on time, It's yes. amazing that way. Uh, and the currency is the Swiss currency. Unfortunately, you do. It, it's still as expensive as the rest of Switzerland. But the hiking there is exceptional. And it is 
beautiful. I think both of us uh, would want to remind people there's great urban treats in Switzerland. The cities, the great cities, Lugano, uh, Lucerne, Bern, Geneva, Zurich. These are great cities to check out. Also, the lakes are beautiful. Uh, we got to remember, when you're built in the mountains, you've got so much diversity because... Ten miles as the crow flies is a long way for, totally. a, for a peasant in the Middle Ages, down one valley and then up the next valley. So different right. languages, different well, traditions. You greeted me with the four different languages, and you actually said Guten Tag. Uh, yeah. Nobody there says Guten Tag. I was going to say Grüße. They say Grüße in Bern. Yeah. They'll say Grüße in Zurich. And what you have is each different valley had different language evolve over time. So Svitschaduch is actually not a very deeply documented language because there's so much variation across the country. I love that. And you can cross um, cantonal borders with fanfare, I think. Uh, the canton would be the equivalent of a state. Exactly, exactly. There's so much pride. Oh, my gosh. And what I would love is I would go to some of these speeches. Like I went to a speech when SBB, um, the train company, opened the Gotthard Tunnel. Oh, yeah. Which, going back to the initial part of our conversation, like they can do that kind of thing that takes 10 years of investment because of their government structure. And he did his speech in five languages. He did it in Romance. He did it in Italian. He did it in German. He did it in French. And he did it in English. It was amazing, fluidly. You know, and it gives the, the Swiss people kind of advantage because they're already geared up to communicate with their neighbors, totally. the French, the Italians, and the totally. Germans. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Susie Levine. She served as the ambassador representing the United States in Switzerland and Liechtenstein for three years uh, while President Obama was in office. And Susie, when I introduce you, uh, you'd like to be introduced as the former ambassador to Switzerland and Liechtenstein. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Give uh, Liechtenstein a little bit of light right now. Just in the last minute or two, we have uh, Liechtenstein, that tiny little country nestled in the Alps between Austria and Switzerland. Totally. Well, what are you doing August 15th? Uh, I'm probably going to Liechtenstein. You're going to meet me at National Day there. All right. National Day is every year, August 15th, and the prince and the princely family open their yard and invite everybody in for pretzels and beer and sandwiches. They do a little speech. It's extraordinary. Liechtenstein punches far above its weight in many ways, whether that's from a human rights standpoint, whether that's from an economic standpoint. And it really, truly is very much a fairy tale land. And on that August 15th, you would see just exceptional fireworks as long as there's not a fire danger and wonderful hiking. Most of it is mountains. And as a fairy tale princedom, uh, yeah. I, I have this image because I've, I've... It's a principality. A prince, when, you have a, ah. when you have a principality, yeah. the highest ranking member of a monarchy is a prince. Just like in a duchy, you would have a duke as the highest level. So the prince is palace, in my memory, sits on the bluff, and yes. behind you, you've got the Alps, and the and the ridge is the border between Liechtenstein and Austria, yep. and that provides a beautiful mountain sort of backdrop. And then before you, you have the Rhine River, which is the border between Liechtenstein and Switzerland, mm -hmm. and your your princedom right there. And totally. you, can, you could walk across it in an hour, <laughs> and you know everybody by name, and it's just, and it's very affluent, it's very uh, trust in institutions, yeah. and it's very uh, sleek. It's worth a side trip. It's totally. worth a side trip when totally. you're traveling. Susie, it's a delight to travel and to talk with you. And to, I want to thank you for your service. And I'm so glad that, that we're neighbors now. You live in Seattle. You're still busy in government. If I was to go into your home, is there any, uh, what would I see that would remind me of your uh, passion for Switzerland? Do you have any Swiss souvenir on the wall? or what? what we have an obscene number of tchotchkes all over our house. 
whether that is a soccer or football, from when the World Cup was held in Switzerland to the dinosaur footprint from the Jura, Jurassic, right? Jurassic. Jurassic. Is from Jura. Okay, the that's Jura, the, 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 one the, border, of the bordering uh, France. Exactly, side, yeah. exactly. We have, like I said, just an absurd number of little different tchotchkes from places, from people, from our experience there. And we loved it. We go there as often as we can. Oh. And it really has stolen deep places in our heart, both Switzerland and Liechtenstein. Well, even years after your service as ambassador, you're still an ambassador of goodwill to Switzerland and between the United States and Switzerland. Susie Levine, thank you so much. Happy travels and best wishes. Thank you. You too. Susie Levine explains why Swiss money is different from their EU neighbors. That's in an extra to today's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, bring out the wetsuits and scuba gear as we explore diving destinations around the world. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. When you consider that 70% of the Earth's surface is water, you'll realize that you're only getting a small glimpse of our planet's wonders when you just stick to exploring what's on land. Getting below the surface usually involves scuba diving to experience the underwater world. It's not really as difficult or out of reach to do that as you might imagine. Diving experts Kerry Miller and Chris Taylor believe that we care about what we experience firsthand. So they've written the National Geographic book, A Diver's Guide to the World, Remarkable Dive Travel Destinations Above and Beneath the Surface. Their mission is to get divers traveling and to get travelers diving to help everyone experience the connections between our planet's green and blue spaces. They're with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves from their home in Byron Bay, Australia. Kerry, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting us to be here. Thanks. You know, this concept is just great. I've never thought of it. It's just kind of cool. Your mission to have divers more enthusiastic about traveling and travelers a little more clued into diving. And that's really what your book, A Diver's Guide to the World, is all about. It doesn't just talk about great places to dive. It talks about great places to go, to travel to, and to dive. Is that right, Carrie? Yeah, that's right. This book actually started out very organically. When Chris and I first met, he was an experienced diver, and I was a complete water baby. I loved snorkeling, but I hadn't started diving yet. And so we'd travel together, and Chris would spend half the day underwater, and I'd spend half the day on land having some sort of adventures. And we'd get together for lunch or dinner and talk about what we had seen and done. And the other one was just green with envy, and we realized just how much we were missing out on. And so that's where this concept came from, is that this is the best way to see a place both above and below and, and a great example of that, I just had so much fun reading through the book. Um, there's a little tiny island I'd never heard of in the Caribbean, Saba. And it's got like 2,000 people. It's a Dutch colony or something like that. And I was looking at it thinking in terms of, okay, diving. What are we going to see if we dive here? And I kept thinking, I want to travel here also. And Carrie, tell us a little bit about Saba, how it's, it's kind of great above the water and below the water. Well, it's funny because it's the highest point in the Netherlands. So um, there's actually a cloud forest on it. It's just this kind of triangular drop of an island, just emerald green. It has a wandering beach that shows up from time to time. So travelers who go there, it's amazing for hiking. It's got incredible hiking. And then they set up a marine park way before they needed one. And so the, the underwater world is really rich. Nice. Yeah, it just looked adorable as far as a, a little island to visit, and the, the diving looked great, too. Chris, what about you? If, if you, had a, you were talking to a couple and one of them wanted to travel and the other wanted to dive, 
Where would you uh, recommend they go where they both could be happy? One really good place that comes to mind is um, Borms Les Mimosa. I've probably uh, just absolutely wrecked the name. Uh, in the south of France, it's very close to Saint-Tropez and Nice. It's got all that glitz and glamour that you'd expect from the south of France and wineries and beautiful scenery and all of that. But there's also absolutely brilliant diving there. And most people tend to think of the Mediterranean as this dead place that's not worth diving anymore because it's just so overfished. But Borms actually created a marine park in the 60s. So it's been there for a very long time. And so the diving there is actually very, very good. There's a lot of wildlife still. And um, there's also some great wreck diving. So it would definitely suit both divers and non-divers alike. And, and that's in the south of France on the Riviera near Saint-Tropez? Yeah, it's not far from Saint-Tropez. I think it's about 25, 30 minutes to Saint-Tropez, if I okay. remember correctly. Because, you know, one point on my notes a little further down here is, are some places dead compared to others, like the Mediterranean Sea? And, and you answered it there. I guess <laughs> the Mediterranean Sea in general could be not as uh, colorful and full of life as another place, but certain areas that have taken care of their uh, environment? Or how does that work, Carrie? Well, the Mediterranean is an interesting one. Um, Oceans, just like places, are shaped by history and culture. And the Mediterranean has been this thoroughfare for trade and culture for such a long time. But currently, less than 2% of it is actively protected. And the rest is just in this kind of high seas, wild west territory with no country having jurisdiction. So when you're diving, you see that there's a sense of it being overfished and being overused to some degree. But there are these pockets that are being protected. And when you see the difference between protected ocean and not protected ocean, you see what it could be or what it was like. That's fascinating that that would be that effective, that you could have a vast sea that's not adequately protected, but if there is a small little zone that is taken care of, that would actually be uh, full of life. Correct. And it spills over. So that zone, the fish, you know, obviously don't know the boundaries. So then they they spill right. out into non-protected areas and that helps everybody. That helps the divers, that helps fishermen, that helps everybody. So I guess that would relate to uh, if you're flying across the Caribbean, you look down at the island of Hispaniola and you got the Dominican Republic, and you got Haiti. And from the air, you can see a, a straight line, where it, which is the border. One side has trees, and the other side is, is desolate. It's because of human treatment. And the same would be, you could say, underwater. This is the really important thing about dive travel, is that we need more people to see the sea. We need more eyes on the ocean. It's become kind of this global blue carpet to just sweep things under. The more people that see it, that can see what's happening underwater, the more we engage with it and encourage to protect it. Especially there have been projects taking leaders of different countries out scuba diving, um, especially in the Pacific, where some of the leaders Mm. had never scuba dived and seen their own reefs. And that has led to the establishment of marine parks. And like we said in the very beginning, uh, you know, we care most about what we've experienced firsthand. So I suppose you could almost have an environmentalist uh, agenda behind your book, A Diver's Guide to the World, if more people can not just travel there, but take a look at what's, like Kerry said, under the rug. uh, You might be a little more interested in making sure everything is well taken care of. Dive experts Chris Taylor and Kerry Miller recommend 50 deep-sea diving locations in 35 countries in their book, A Diver's Guide to the World. It's published by National Geographic. Kerry's also written 100 Dives of a Lifetime, the world's ultimate underwater destinations. Their website is 
beneaththesurface.media, which is also the name of their Instagram account. You know, when I looked at your map, most of your favorite destinations are in the tropical or subtropical areas, but I did notice that you had Valdez in Alaska and Orkney at the very top of Scotland. My impression would be that tropical is better than Arctic for scuba diving, uh, not just because the water's warmer, but there's more to see. How would you answer that? Look, I wouldn't say one is better than the other, but when it comes to where people like to go and travel and go on holiday, I'd probably say the majority of people would prefer to go on holiday to a warm destination. But cold water environments around the world are absolutely spectacular underwater. Sometimes they're even more colorful than corresponding tropical reefs. It's amazing. So tell us, Chris, what we might see at Valdez, Alaska, or in in Orkney, north of Scotland. So um, in Valdez, if you go diving, there's very, very pretty sponge corals and anemones underwater there. I also did something that was very, very unique. I was able to go for a scuba dive in a river with spawning salmon. And uh, that was pretty spectacular. We were only two or three feet underwater um, lying in the river, but then the salmon just thousands and thousands of salmon just swim straight past you in the river. And in the meantime, Carrie had to sit up top on a log with one of the other guides with a shotgun and bear spray. (laughs) I was going to say, you could be very zen underwater watching the salmon and all of a sudden, bam, and (laughs) and a bear claw snaps one of them out and you'd be seeing it from underwater. Exactly. In the Orkneys, um, as a contrast, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of wildlife in northern Scotland, but that wasn't the main reason we went to the Orkneys. For diving in the Orkneys, we particularly went there for wreck diving to see the sunken shipwrecks that are there. So oh, yeah. Orkney is a massive natural harbour. Oh, Orkney is famous for its shipwreck. It's, it's World War I and World War II shipwrecks. Exactly. So uh, mainly World War I, but yeah. Orkney's been a harbour since the Viking times. It's been this incredible place, a melting pot of cultures for centuries. But yes, in the First World War, the British captured the German fleet at the end of the First World War, collected all the ships, pretty much all of the ships in the Orkney Islands. And the German commanders who were still on the ships decided to sink the ships so they wouldn't fall into British hands. So they all scuttled all of their ships in this big harbour. And a lot of them are still there and still diveable as wrecks, which is pretty spectacular. And to this day, it's contributing to the economy by attracting divers to that humble community north of Scotland. Kerry, when I was reading through your book, I realized you both live in Byron Bay in Australia, and that's one of the locations in the book. Uh, Is that a particularly special place for diving? Is that why you ended up living there? It is. um, Byron Bay is a very, very special place for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, the diving is one of the best dive spots on the planet, but not even Australians know how good it is. Uh, It's this little hunk of rock just offshore called Julian Rocks, and it's right smack in the East Australian current. So everything that's migrating up and down the East Coast of Australia stops in for a visit. So it changes. All the seasons change. You get leopard sharks and manta rays at one time a year. Uh, You get gray nurse sharks at another time, humpbacks stopping in. So it's just incredible, ever-changing, diverse diving. Well, it's it's the easternmost tip of Australia, right? So it would make sense that all of the parade of fish would go around that tip. Yes, they do. And they stop in for a rest or to have a feed when they're migrating. Um, It's also the place that Chris and I both learned to dive, ironically, and not together either. Now, you know, I was intrigued and sort of inspired by your book because I've never I've never scuba dived, but I love to snorkel, and I know the thrill of snorkeling. Can you explain, Chris, to our 
listeners, how is the diving experience different than snorkeling? Is is snorkeling essentially good enough, or what does diving free you up to experience? So um, snorkeling is wonderful, and it's it's a great experience, and it's obviously easily accessible for a lot of people. What diving does is when you're snorkeling, you're looking down on everything, so you're getting this one perspective from above 10, 15 feet above what's going on, um, diving is a lot more immersive because you are on the same level as the fish. And in a lot of cases, the fish aren't scared of you. So unlike if you're walking through a forest and you see a deer, the deer will get skittish and it'll it'll run away. Unlike that, underwater, a lot of the animals do not perceive us as a threat at all. So I find that the wildlife interactions underwater are, are a lot closer. So you get much more intertwined into the goings on. So you mean a snorkeler is perceived more of a threat because they're coming at him from the top, whereas a diver is part of the scene? No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that the snorkeler is perceived as more of a threat, but just in general, we're, not, we're often not perceived as a threat by animals in the ocean, which is great. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're exploring beneath the surface right now with dive experts Carrie Miller and Chris Taylor. They're the team behind National Geographic's Diver's Guide to the World, remarkable dive travel destinations above and beneath the surface. You can find out more about Chris and Carrie and their work at Beneath the Surface Media on Instagram. So, Carrie, let's say um, I'm, I'm ready to go on my first dive and I've learned what I need to learn and so on. Can you explain to me the actual process? What You're going to take me diving What's the process? What are we going to do? How do I suit up? What do I need to be mindful of? So first thing is that you'll check into the dive shop that's going to be taking us out. Most of the diving is done with a guide. You can self-guide and you can self-dive, but for most purposes, you go through a dive shop. So we'll start there. And if you have your own gear, you start putting that together. If you don't have any gear, they'll kit you out with gear. So they'll get you your wetsuit. They'll get you your tank and your regulator that you're going to breathe through. And they'll give you a dive briefing, a very comprehensive briefing on what we're going to see, what the conditions are like, and then some basic, if things go wrong, this is what we're going to do. Um, if somebody gets lost or if the weather conditions change, this is how we're going to behave. So that it's a very comprehensive briefing. And then you go out in a boat, usually out to the dive location. Everybody checks their gear, make sure everybody's comfortable and ready to go. And then you just dive in. Do you travel with your gear or do you rent it as you go? You can do both. Chris and I like to travel with our gear because it's familiar, and so therefore it's it's comfortable. Yeah. But obviously that's an entire suitcase worth of gear. And yes. obviously a lot of people who only like to dive once or twice a year don't have their own gear. And if that's the case, that the dive shop will provide it. So then you don't, you don't actually need to bring anything. So, Chris, it seems like it's an expensive sport. Uh, first of all, you got to be able to travel to a place and everything. And if I go, let's say, to Belize, and I want to go out onto the Keys, famous for diving, so there's people there ready to rent me gear. I've got absolutely nothing. I know how to dive. Uh, how much would it cost? Roughly, it's probably roughly about $100 a dive is probably the global average. But obviously, depending on where you're diving, it can be cheaper or it can be more expensive. Okay, so that's no different than skiing or something like that. And you're not paying for lifts, so that's good. Although you will probably have a guide and a, and a boat and this kind of thing as an option. But that will usually be included um, in your $100 fee because oh, the, guide, the guide won't be generally... I mean, you can get a private guide, but generally it'll be a group thing. So you go out with a group. And getting certified, what, how involved is it? If I, Let's say I'm a good swimmer. How do I get certified? 
So getting certified is actually kind of like learning to drive a car. So there's the theory part um, where you study the theory and then you practice with a qualified instructor. And then basically you're ready to go. And from there, your proficiency depends on how often you practice, your comfort levels, and how regularly you dive. But how many hours do you have to take programs to learn and how much does that cost? Sure. So it usually it's um, theory that you can do online. You can do the theory part by yourself. Um, and then that would probably take a few hours to go through the theory. And then you have um, four dives that you do with an instructor. And so that's two usually in the pool where you go through your basic skill sessions and then two out in open water. And then they'll answer any questions that you had during the theory part. Cost-wise, it varies depending on location, but say ballpark about $350. So you could go to some nice Caribbean beach resort and spend the time and money, and in a week you could be fully certified and safe to to dive uh, after that? Absolutely. And the best part is you can do your theory before you get to your Caribbean island, so you can get the classroom work done before you even go. So all you're Could focusing on is dining. For sure. We'll do it with you. Okay, because I was really inspired when you wrote about how diving made your world a bigger place. Where I just want to wrap up our, our discussion by share for me that first time you actually dived and the eureka that swept over you. I just had no idea what I was missing out on. No idea. Like I said, I've been a lifelong snorkeler, but when I got down there and was looking around and... There is so much life down there, and there is so much variety in landscapes. It mirrors the terrestrial. I never knew that existed down there. It was such a life-changing moment. The authors of A Diver's Guide to the World are our guests right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Chris Taylor and his wife, Kerry Miller, are joining us from their home in Byron Bay, Australia. You'll find more about our guests with each week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Paint a picture for those of us who have never been down there. I can imagine, you know, wispy currents and and forests that kind of dance of greenery and spooky fish coming out of dark holes. What what do you what's your dreamy image that that you would share with me if I was able to dive with you? Well, so as you descend, you've got the rays of the sunlight piercing through the water and just illuminating it. And then you look down and you might see a coral city and it's all bright and colorful and oranges and purples and pinks. And you've got this city of life that's just happening with fish flitting in and out of the coral, going about their daily fish lives. And then you've got eagle rays swooping over these sand channels soaring over the sand and then you get some bigger fish coming in and potentially like a reef shark coming in and they're zippy and fun and charismatic and all of this is happening and they're completely just ignoring you and you're just part of it. I always try to sneak in and see how much of a part of a fish school I can belong to before they figure out I'm there and leave. Whoa, whoa. I, I, I'm telling you, this this interview is having an impact on me. Chris Taylor, Carrie Miller, Thanks for writing A Diver's Guide to the World, and uh, thanks for sharing with us the wonder of your passion. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you very much, and uh, we'd love to take you diving one day. Let's make that happen. Byron Bay, east tip of Australia, here I come. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm the executive producer, Tim Tappen. Our associate producers are Kazmura Hall and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate promotions from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Steve Camerano for his help this week. 
When you're on a road trip, you can listen to Travel with Rick Steves on one of more than 500 other radio stations. You'll find a list of when and where we're broadcast at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. I've found that if you equip yourself with good information and expect yourself to travel smart, you can. And that's why the Rick Steves guidebooks are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. Pick up the latest edition at your favorite bookseller or at ricksteves.com.